This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Philippians chapter 1. We're in our, our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And our text today is the conclusion of Paul's report of his mission that he's giving to the church. He wants them to know how it's going with him. He, he's, he's emphasizing that his time in chains has served to advance the gospel. There's some question about that in their mind, so he's writing to them. And he's saying even, even the palace guard, Caesar's palace guard, is hearing about Christ, and the others are boldly proclaiming Christ. So there's no need to be ashamed that he's in prison. Everyone should be rejoicing. And, and today's text is a critical text that I believe the Lord wants to accomplish a lot in our midst with. So we'll begin reading at the very end of verse 19 and then read down through verse 26. This is God's Word. It's God's inspired Word. It's inerrant. has authority in our lives. Yes, and I will rejoice... For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to Depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Lord, bless your word this morning. This text has, has proven over the years to be one of the most influential texts in all of Scripture for my personal life. Through John Piper's preaching, his teaching and writing, a well-known, popular Christian preacher and teacher, this text has helped me understand my conversion biblically over the last 25 years. Dr. Piper transitioned from pastoral ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis a few years ago. And when he did, he did a series of messages called 
what he called 30-year theological trademarks. They were all wonderful, but one, one message was called, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. It's a well-known slogan or phrase that their church coined to describe what Piper calls Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. It's a, it's a short summary of what he's trying to communicate. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Plain old hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. I remember one pastor early on said to me, hedonism was unredeemable. It makes sense from a Christian perspective. Plain old hedonism is just doing what you want to do. And he didn't think Piper should try to use that word. But I, I think Dr. Piper, I'll stick with Piper on this one. He's, I think, been successful. It works for me. Our text is written by the Apostle Paul, who, according to Dr. Piper, is a Christian hedonist. The sermon was about a massive and pervasive biblical truth that changes everything in your life. And Paul said, or Dr. Piper said that Paul is not only an example, but he's the founder of Christian hedonism that is so clear in this text. When I became a Christian a long, long time ago, I wouldn't have known even what plain old hedonism was, let alone Christian hedonism. And Piper has used a lot of ink trying to explain what it is and what he means. But prior to coming to Christ, I now know, having learned the definition, that I was a hedonist. And most of my friends were hedonists even though I didn't know the definition of the word. In fact, I think we all were. I lived for pleasure. I pursued self-indulgence. It was my default philosophy in life. I can tell you that it wasn't going well for me. And if you pay attention to the world around you, who for the most part lives for this philosophy, you'll see that plain old hedonism doesn't go well for anyone. Psalm 7 says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. It's a wisdom psalm where God is communicating this is the way the world works. It's like Proverbs, a book of wisdom. Proverbs 11, verse 6 the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lusts. Hedonism didn't work for me. It doesn't work for anyone because God's word is true. God's the creator, and this is his word, and it's truth. In God's providence, when I was a teenager, God caused me to be born again. I was regenerated. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2, I was carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I was by nature a child of wrath like the rest 
of mankind. All of us are like this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead spiritually. He gave us new birth. By grace, you have been saved. And you have this new life. And in one moment, by the grace of God, I became a Christian hedonist. I'd never been so happy in all my life. A life pursuing pleasure outside of Christ did not deliver as advertised. I was told it would bring joy. It didn't. But by the grace of God, whatever was gained to me, I counted as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And now I can testify that God's promises are true. He does deliver as advertised. God is faithful. There is true joy in Jesus Christ. And when I began to read Dr. Piper's books and hear him preach his sermons about Christian hedonism, when he pointed to this text and said Paul was a hedonist, Christian hedonist, and he was an example and the founder of this, which is crystal clear in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, all of life is Christ, and to die is gain. All of this resonated with me. I'm no Apostle Paul, but I knew what he meant, and it helped me understand what happened to me. Why was it so easy to quit bad things that I had a habit of doing? Why did I change so radically in a short time? I simply found something I liked better. My desires changed. That's where the gospel works. It works in our desires. It changes what we want. Knowing Christ filled me with joy, and I liked it. Christ became most valuable to me. He, he became my treasure. He still is. I still had plenty of sin. I've quit sinning now, but <laughs> I still have plenty of sin. But I was, and I am to some degree, a person who has tasted and seen the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I, I pursued what I wanted. I was a pleasure seeker, but my pleasures were in Christ. Piper wrote, still writes, and teaches, it, it changes everything. It changed everything in my life. It changed my friendships. It changed my relationship with my parents. It, it changed my academic performance. I was showing my grandkids a gun that my dad had given me in high school after my mom let him when she saw my first grade card after my conversion. She became a believer. She was a teacher, and she really liked good grades. Buy it. My, my attendance at church changed. Actually, the church I attended changed. The night I was converted, I was supposed to go with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Sherry, to her kind of, you know, more mainline church where we lived in West Virginia. Instead, we went to a converted bar in a place you probably wouldn't go without a gun these days. 
and went to church, and lo and behold, she became a Christian hedonist that morning. And I didn't have to change girlfriends then. I kept the same girlfriend, and we got married. It changed how the Bible affected my soul. It, I think it changed how God was seen when you viewed my life. I think God was glorified in me more. He hadn't been at all, but I think He was glorified in me to some degree because I was satisfied in Him. And this is what our text is all about today. Now we're going to unpack these verses by looking at three subjects that are important to every Christian I think are in the text. Number one, prayer. Number two, glorifying God or Christian hedonism. And number three, serving. So number one prayer, look in verse 19. Paul says, I rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, these, these chains in this prison will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation, verse 20, and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's decision to rejoice whether he lived or died was not completely irrational. He wasn't a crazy man. His joy, his rejoicing was based on knowledge. I know that. I know that. This, what's happened to me. Prison, chains, possible execution will turn out for my deliverance. Now, these are the same words used by Job in Job chapter 13 in the Old Testament. While he was suffering, if you remember, Job said, Though he slay me, though the Lord slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Then he expressed his hope. This will turn out for my deliverance. Paul had read and studied Job. Paul knew the Old Testament. He's in chains. And while he's in chains, in prison, he recalled the story and the account of Job in the Old Testament. And he applied the truths he learned from Job to his situ situation. He was able to say with Job, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He, he learned from Job, don't lose heart, hope in God. He got hope from the book of Job. Whatever the outcome of the, his present suffering, Whatever the trial, however it would end, Paul believed he was confident that ultimately he'd be delivered. Ultimately, he'd be vindicated, and he had hope. He's in prison, he's in chains, he's writing, but he's communicating hope. He believed his deliverance was above Roman justice. Verse 19, I know, notice, that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. It's going to be accomplished. His deliverance will be accomplished 
through the prayers of his partners, his gospel partners, those he has fellowship with, his friends. It's going to come through their, their prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. These go together, prayer and God's provision. Prayer causes things to happen. These are related. There's a connection. It's not that our prayers have power in themselves apart from the, from the work of the Spirit. Prayer itself is a work of the Spirit. We can't presume on the Spirit's presence. We can't presume on the Spirit's power. We have to pray. We need to make an effort to pray for God's provision of His Spirit in our own personal lives and in the church, as we saw a couple weeks ago when we we looked at Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. And now he's revealing how much he counts on the prayers of his partners in the gospel that are for him. He admits, he depends, he's not isolated, he's not alone. He depends on their prayers. By their prayers, they, they are investing in, in their partnership with Paul. They're bringing about his deliverance. And this is not Paul softening the blow. What he's really wanting to do is ask for money. So he's going to just, you know, let's talk about prayer. You know, it's kind of a nice Christian thing to do. It's not an add-on. In fact, in this letter, he's not asking for money. He never does ask them for money or anything else in this letter. He actually thanks them for all the money they've sent. He said, look, I've got enough, okay? Stop with the money. He doesn't need them to send more money. He's got, he's well supplied. He's content. But, but pray for me. That's what I really need. That, that's what this letter says. The, the truth is, because of their prayers, Paul currently is rejoicing. He has joy. They're praying for him. He isn't anxious. Prayer is the cure of anxiety. We'll find that out clearly in Philippians 4. So he's not anxious because his partners are praying for him. Instead of being anxious, he's filled with joy. Prayer's the cure for anxiety. And, and the, the answer to their prayers is this supply of the Spirit. It's the fullness of the Spirit. God's responding to the prayers of Paul's partners and filling that prison cell with the Spirit. Gordon Fee, in his book, God's Empowering Presence, says Paul rejects thinking of the Christian life as lived in isolation from others. He may be the one in prison and headed for trial, but the Philippians and others are inextricably bound together with him through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he assumes that they're praying and God's gracious supply of the Spirit of his Son will be the means God uses yet once more to bring glory to himself through Paul and Paul's defense of the gospel. He's not alone. He's connected with his partners through the Spirit. Their prayers are filling his life with an experience of God's presence. Notice verse 19 that it's the help of the Spirit 
of Jesus Christ died and raised from the dead. Paul met him on the road to Damascus. And now the Spirit of Jesus Christ is helping him. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of Christ himself. I believe he's present today. Walter Hansen in his commentary says, Paul knows that he's not alone in prison. He will not stand trial alone. If he's sentenced to die, he will not suffer and die alone. He counts on the prayers of his friends and the, the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to fill the darkness of his prison with light and turn his trial into deliverance. Paul was a reformed charismatic. Now, let's pause for a minute. This congregation has a desire to pray. For the last couple of weeks, we put out a little booklet that Paul and I wrote. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, both Sundays, they, they've, they're gone. Now, they are free, but they're gone. So we've had to reprint. Again, this week, we have more available for you in the bookstore. But... He reveals a desire to pray. I just want to give you one piece of advice. I think the number one reason people don't pray is they don't make a plan. So today, when you go home, if you have a desire to pray, go get you a book if you don't have one yet. It's got Paul's prayer and a guide to praying. Make a plan. Doesn't have to be a lot. Just say, okay. Monday, Friday, where and when. Make a plan. When you fail, try again the next week. You'll be surprised the difference it'll make. Number two, second subject, important to all Christians in our text, glorifying God, or you could call it Christian hedonism. Again, verse 19, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, Paul needs courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His great desire is for everyone to see that Christ is his treasure. He wants to magnify the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's his passion. It's his great passion in life. And that's why he, you ha we have this striking statement. To die is gain. <laughs> we are going to pause here. To die is gain. I think it's meant to be stunning. I think this is God's word. And it's meant to shake us from the norm, which is death is not gain. Have you noticed it's that time of year where there are a lot of spiders out in East Tennessee? 
You see more outside, and they all seem to want to come inside. This time of year, I guess they're cold, and uh, they want to come in. But there just seems every fall to be a lot of spiders in East Tennessee. If you're new here, don't move. You'll get used to it. My wife, Sherry, drew my attention to one this week when she was putting the laundry away. She had some white shirts, T-shirts that she was putting away. Large, dark-colored spider was on top of the pile, and she said, Oh, look, honey, there's a spider. Would you please get him? That's not really the way she said it. She... It was something like that. Ah! <laughs> something like that. Ah! I was standing right beside her. Both eardrums were broken. I lost five years off my life. She screamed. She does not like spiders, which is why her sons and I have her watch arachnophobia on Mother's Day pretty regularly. My point is, this is God's Word, and it's really yelling at us today. It's really screaming. It's, it's making a statement that we read past all the time. And we don't think about it. And it doesn't get our attention. It's meant to get our attention. This is God's word yelling at us. To die is gain. This is about our worldview. We have a very different worldview than the worldview outside those doors, don't we? Have you noticed that? We just think different. This little phrase is so important and so striking. It's meant to be ah, striking. It's meant to get our attention. To die is gain. It's countercultural. Death is gain. Imagine looking at a coworker this week, looking him in the eye and saying, "Death is gain," and meaning it, being serious. They'll have you committed. They'll think you're suicidal. There's been unbelieving scholars who say Paul was suicidal. No, he's not suicidal. He knows Christ in ways you can't imagine. Our hope in Christ is not limited to this life. In fact, it's not primarily about this life, is it? It's not primarily about this world. We have a different worldview than your coworker. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we're living our whole life as if that's not the case. In 1 Timothy 4, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's our worldview. We believe in a life to come. 
We believe in eternal life. We don't believe this is the only life, do we? We, we think knowing Christ in this life is the best thing. It's a good thing. Godliness holds promise for this life. But to die truly is gain because of the life to come. Paul, Paul says in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. Christ will be magnified. He'll, he'll be caused to be seen as great in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not that he doesn't have fear. It's not that he's not human. He needs courage. And, and the Spirit gives it. He gives courage. And, and, and therefore, Paul now, facing fears says that his great passion in life is that in his life, Christ would be seen as great. It's why God created us. He truly is supremely great. There is none like him. He created us, and we are called, our purpose is, we're made in his image, and we're to make Christ look like he really is. It's central to who we are. It's central to us as individual Christians, to our church. It's our mission. It's our purpose. How's it happen? Well, again, verse 21, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and note that it, life in verse 20 corresponds to live in verse 21 and death in verse 20 corresponds to die in verse 21. Paul is explaining how Christ is going to be magnified, how we're going to make him look great, how we're going to magnify his greatness and his glory in our lives, how this is really going to happen in death. What does he mean for to me to live as Christ? Well, he explains it explicitly. In chapter 3, verse 8, you can look over there. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ is more valuable and satisfying than all that life on this earth can give anyone. He is better by far. He is far better. The NIV says better by far. We once had a vision quest with a, my favorite t-shirt from vision quest ever. And all the vision quests we've had, it just said better by far. He is better by far. This is what Paul means in Philippians 1.21. Christ has surpassing value. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire, verse 23, is to depart and be with Christ. It's better by far. That's how life magnifies Christ. It's how his life makes Christ look great. It's, it's how his life 
make Christ look like he truly is. In fact, when Paul says to die is gain, if you're not a believer, you may look at this and you may be skeptical. You may, it may make you question the reality of Scripture. You know, could a guy, would a guy really say seriously to die is gain? Would somebody really pin these words and be sincere? But Paul's not alone, is he? Stephen last week mentioned John Patton. If you read John Patton, you'll find he says very similar things. You may remember Jim Elliott. Him and four other missionaries were killed in the 50s, and his motto was, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's the way Christians talk. We've seen it in our church up close in and, and personal, most recently with Brendan Jap, I was with him when the diagnosis came, fourth stage cancer. Immediately, he began to communicate. And I believe sincerely, because he did it for four years prior to his death, he kept saying, death is gain. He never wavered. Before him, he had a great example in Doug Sexton. His last day, I was with him. He gave a fist bump when his wife said, you're very soon going to be with Christ. He couldn't talk. Christ will be magnified even in his death because to Paul, death is gain. The world around us sees death as the greatest loss of all. You lose everything this world has to offer. And this world around us doesn't believe in God. And they may not say it, but they're in a, a bondage to the fear of death. They don't want to talk about it. Happy thoughts. Why do we see death as gain? Verse 23, second part of the verse. My desire is to depart, die is gain, and be with Christ. For that is far better. Death is gain because it means a greater closeness with Christ. It means being with Christ in a closer way than now. To die is to depart and be with him, and he's better. And that's, that's why Paul says, in verse 21, that to die is gain. You add up all the losses. You lose everything. You lose your family. You, you lose your job. Retirement's over then. Your friends, your favorite pleasures. You add them all up and compare, compare them with death and Christ. And death is gain. Here's what John Piper says, Christ is most magnified in your death when you are so satisfied in Christ that losing everything and, and getting only Christ is called gain. Christ is glorified in you when he is more precious to you than all that life can give or death can take. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus, and he met the risen Christ, and it changed his life. 
And he's writing the Corinthians one time. You may remember this in 2 Corinthians 12. And he tells them that he was caught up to the third heaven. That just meant the unseen world, the unseen heaven where God is. That's what he meant by the third heaven, the highest heaven, the the unseen realm where God dwells. And he said he was caught up to the third heaven. He called it paradise. He said he heard things that cannot be told. And you think about all that he did tell us in his writings. But he didn't tell us all. He heard things cannot be told. They can't be uttered. More than any other man, I think it's safe to say, Paul knew Jesus Christ. Paul knew God. More more was revealed to Paul. He was an apostle. It was revealed to him, and he he wrote it out for us. We have this letter today. It's God's Word. It was revealed to Paul by the Spirit. He had greater experiences than any other man. When he says death is gain, he knows things we don't know about Christ. (laughs) That's why that little phrase is screaming at us today. It really is gain. You may have seen this week William Shatner, the 90-year-old veteran of countless imaginary space voyages playing Star Trek's Captain Kirk blasted off for real last Wednesday. Became the oldest person to reach the final frontier. It was a PR stunt for one of these rocket companies, Blue Origin. He was in the air 10 minutes and 17 seconds. They went up to the edge of space. They call it suborbital spaceflight. 65 miles up. They had about three or four minutes of weightlessness. They got a great view of the Earth, and then they parachuted back down. His ticket was free. For publicity, but there were paying passengers. I'm told it's about $450,000. So if you're interested, imagine if I thought about this if William Shatner really was Captain Kirk. What if he really did go boldly where no man had ever gone before in the Starship Enterprise? What if that really was true? Imagine. He'd really done all those things that we watched him do on Star Trek all those years. And then at 90, Blue Origin comped him a ticket. And he went to the edge of space, a suborbital flight for 10 minutes. I think it's safe to say Captain Kirk would have thought Blue Origin was pretty lame. I think he'd have pulled Jeff Bezos or however you say his name aside and said, man, you guys got a long way to go. I mean, there's a whole universe out there. You haven't even got to the first universe. You can go much further. I've been there before. The Apostle Paul wasn't an actor. He wasn't trying to entertain us. He, he experienced something much greater than space travel. 
And he's saying to us this morning, we can know greater joys. This third subject of interest to us is serving. And it's, it's just in God's providence that this morning we highlighted two men who get this. I'm so thankful for these new deacons. And I love deacons. In my mind, they are wonderful examples of behind-the-scenes servants. And so it's just great that we can look at serving from these verses and encourage these men and be inspired by them. Verse 24 says, To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Okay, now, again, this is not something your coworker is going to really get. What Paul is saying in these verses is, is that, okay, I'm looking at death. I'm looking at life. My passion is to magnify the Lord. What should I do? I'd rather depart and be with Christ, because that's better by far. All right, I'll stay. Because you need me. I am here to work for the progress of your faith and your joy. And if I depart and go be with Christ, I won't be here to serve you. So I know I'm going to live. <laughs> Again, your, your co-workers are going to think this is a very bizarre letter. It is a very different worldview, isn't it? He's postponing his desire to be with Christ so he can serve. Again, Walter Hansen in his commentary, Paul was willing to delay crossing the finish line in his own race in order to serve the needs of the believers in Philippi. He set aside his personal ambition or preference so that he could do what was necessary for them. Serving the community outweighs individual desires. It's bizarre. He chooses life so he can serve. He's emulating Christ. He's a great example. We'll see in chapter 2 this great hymn about Christ. Christ who was a servant, as Jeff said this morning. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm going to serve you. His goal is to serve them. He wants them, verse 26, to have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So convinced of this, he's going to stay and minister to them for your progress and joy. That's what this whole meeting has been about today. The goal of the pastoral team, Levi's goal, the worship team, everything we do is to serve you, to help you progress in your faith and your joy in Christ. We've come together today, and corporate worship is, is all about receiving. We just receive, and we receive, and we receive, and then we just magnify the glory of His grace. That's what corporate worship is all about. Christ is better by far. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let me ask the worship team to come. We're going to return to singing.
so that we can appropriately give God glory together as a church. Father, thank you for your word. I do pray for the spirit of Jesus Christ, Lord, to fill each and every individual this morning and to fill this congregation. So even right now, Lord, we can experience the joy, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray for any Christian that is discouraged, depressed. I pray, Father, that today would be a great help to their fight for joy in Christ. Let this week be filled with prayer. Let it be filled with your presence, your spirit, and let our hearts be filled with joy as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.